been on a plane and just before you put your headphones in or open up that brand new book you've been putting off for six months, the guy next to you leans over and asks, so what do you do? Annoying, right? But as annoying as that guy is, more times than not, he walks away with a new cocktail party fact or career choice or simply something he didn't know before. Coming up, I get to be that guy for you. My name is David Kendall Casey, and welcome to What Do You Do? Hello, ladies, gentlemen, infants, small toddlers, household pets. My name is David Kendall Casey, and let's say I'm on a flight from Baltimore to my home state of Rhode Island, uh, and I look over at a woman, and she's reading a book called Chicken Soup for the SLP's Soul, and I ask, uh, so what do you do? Are you asking me? I am asking you. (laughs) (laughs) I am a speech-language pathologist. Okay. So stop right there. Pathology, right? Diseases and disorders, right? Correct. Okay. And speech language pathology, I'm assuming, means you diagnose and work with and or work with speech disorders? And language disorders, And language yes. disorders. Okay. What's the, what's the difference? Speech disorders and delays specifically refers to articulation or speech sounds Mm -hmm. it refers to um, fluency or stuttering it refers to voice problems like if you have um, a hoarseness in your voice or pitch problems in your voice anything that is not specifically regarding your receptive or expressive language okay is it considered a speech? So people in the speech section. Are there people who literally talk in one volume all the time, like loud, just yelling? I'm sure there are. Wow. I I do not know of them, but okay, it would not surprise me. And the treatment for that is that would not necessarily be a speech disorder that may be a personality slash behavior disorder versus a speech disorder (laughs) well that's good because that brings me to a point that i it just so happens the in-flight movie was uh the king's speech uh very good delightful film and i i'll be honest i thought it was a short film about 20 minutes in when the dad george the fourth is yelling at his son to get it out, right? When he's just on the radio broadcast, he's like, just do it. I thought that that method would work. If you just say, just do it to someone, that they'll do it. What's the problem? What's the the problem with yelling at someone with a stutter to just get it out? The problem with just yelling at someone with a stutter to get it out is the same as just yelling at someone with any type of diagnosed um difficulty sure um (laughs) it would be like yelling at your child who can't say their r sound correctly to just say it right right so any of these things that you know may affect your ability to be understood whether it's through a fluency issue or through a speech sound issue generally speaking if that that person could produce fluent speech or could produce correct speech sounds, they would. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, well, he's going to do it. Uh, his dad's telling him to do it. He's yelling at him. So he's just going to, it's just going to come out. But of course this guy was somewhat ignorant, right? About stutters as, as most people probably were back then. But what do we know now that we didn't know I'm sure we know a lot, but what do we know now specifically about let's, let's stick with stutters that we didn't know back then? Um, well, several things. Um, in that movie, they talked about smoking to mm. quote unquote relax the vocal cords, yeah. um, which we know that that does not relax anything. Um, smoke and other irritants actually cause inflammation of all of the 
parts that they affect, including the vocal cords. So um, that would not relax them. Yeah, but um, a doctor told him to do it. Well, doctors then were not aware of correct methods to help stutterers. Okay. So when my doctor tells me to take aspirin, I should be like, listen, you, the future is going to rule your diagnosis out. And we know now, we're going to know in 2050 that aspirin doesn't work. What's your response? <laughs> my response is that you do the best that you can with the information you have at the time. Okay, I like that. All right, you were, you were saying something. Though. Yes, I was saying that. You asked me what the differences are now. So like I said, we would know that smoking does not relax the vocal cords. Mm -hmm. Smoking is an irritant to the vocal cords and everything else involved in speech. Um, the other thing is that um, we now know that stuttering generally is caused because the person knows that they're going to stutter. Right. It's a um, feedback loop type thing. So the person realizes the stutter is going to happen, which then causes them to stutter. Yeah. I remember the scene, and I won't spoil anything, but the scene, the first scene at Wembley, the, the, whole, the director did a really good job because the whole thing, the anxiety was just completely palpable. Because he gets up on at the mic at Wembley, this thing, and you can you know you can see the crowd turn towards him, and he just speaks in, you know, just one syllable, uh, and doesn't say anything. So is, uh, anxiety you're saying about the stutter can exacerbate the the stutter. Yes. Okay. And not even necessarily anxiety as we would define anxiety, um, more just the knowledge that you know you're going to do it. Right. So then you do it. <laughs> so you, well, that's why that like the philosophical problem. That's like one one of the strategies that a lot of people with fluency issues employ is they change the word that they're going to use because yeah. they know in advance hey, I'm going to stutter on this word, so let me find one that means the same thing or as close as possible right. that I won't stutter on. Yeah, I guess so. he changed some of the words in that in the, the famous King's speech to, to, you know, more words that he could pronounce, which is, yeah, that's interesting. So they know, so people with stutters typically know from when they're children uh, that, they know they know which words are going to do it. Um. Yes, I would say most of the time. Okay. Okay. So now you come into the story, and you're uh, Jeffrey Rush or Lionel Logue, but you have a degree, right? I do. Yes, okay. two of them. As you a matter too. of fact. Well, good for you. <laughs> um. So you come in and you say, "Look, Mister King." Your Majesty, I can fix your stutter. Would you be as confident as Lionel? Lo he was. He was like, I can fix it if you want me to fix it. Is are they all fixable? I don't know that I recall him saying he could completely fix it, but I well, have no, not he seen them completely fix it. <laughs> yes, because they're never completely fixed. Right? You, you, well, you can. There are strategies that can be employed to increase people's fluency. Mm. Um. But no, I would never tell the king or any other patient that I could quote unquote fix pretty much anything because you never know. Right. You you can employ methods that you have worked used with other people that have worked 99% of the time and then you might have a person for whom those don't work. So there are definitely for people that have fluency issues, there are strategies that can definitely increase their fluency. Okay. Okay. So is it, does it become an unconscious process at a certain point to, to where you don't have to think about it all the time? And where, so you just kind of rewire your brain a little bit? Um, uh, I would say I'm not sure that it ever becomes completely natural. Um, I think it's a combination of things. Number one, accepting that you do have a fluency issue goes a long way because then you don't get quite as um, 
I don't know if I want to use the word anxious or upset, but you don't get quite as stuck in the loop of, okay, I know I'm going to stutter, so, right. I, so I stutter. Right. If you accept the fact that you have fluency issues, mm-hmm. then that goes a long way to then you not being concerned that you're going to stutter. Sure. Because it just is kind of part of your communication style. And um, so that's part of it. And then also just... Um, I think the more you use certain techniques, you figure out which ones are either the most natural for you or that are um, the most successful for you. Uh, So again, I'm not sure that it would ever be something that just would never cross your mind, but it would definitely, you would, you, after treatment and practice, I'd say many, many people, um, could find things that make their fluency easier. Okay. And so just to take a step back, because I do want to actually get back into the King's speech. I think that's a really interesting lens into your profession that not a lot of people know that a stutter can be fixed or can be worked on or how it can be worked on or a lisp or whatever, whatever is the ailment. But how did you get into this? How did you, what was young Debbie Casey doing uh, that got her into, I'm going to fix people's, I'm sorry, help people's speech. (laughs) Um, Well, I was kind of the probably typical high school senior who grew very tired by the end of my senior year of people asking, what are you going to major in? Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do? Because I did not know. Um, I think I had mm, at least two or three majors before I kind of stumbled into speech pathology. I was a journalism major. Um, and then I was just, I kind of broadened that down out into communications, more like corporate communications, Mm -hmm. not speech language communications. Um, and then I thought about being a special education teacher, um, because I really felt like I wanted to focus on kids Um, and then to be totally honest with you, I babysat for a family and the mom, when I was telling her what I was going to do, um, encouraged me to look into speech language pathology. Um, and at that time, I mean, I knew what like a physical therapist was. I don't think I really knew what an occupational therapist was, but you know, I kind of had a slight idea of what quote unquote therapy type professions involved. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I decided to just take a class in um, communication disorders. And so Very cool. that kind of is how it all started. Sweet. So To get back to, to the King's speech, Lionel, uh, his, his speech therapist, speech, speech, is it speech language therapist? or well, I was going to ask you, what's the difference first quickly between a speech therapist and a speech language pathologist or is there there is not one it's just different terminology the terminology has terminology has changed over time Mm -hmm. so um you know back when the profession first began um i mean i'm i know i've heard like speech teacher Mm -hmm. i've heard um right? right yeah you know so we've had many many names and i think when I graduated, um, the term was speech language pathologist because it kind of was a better, um, more encompassing title of everything that we do. It it wasn't just speech therapist or speech teacher or whatever, because there's a very large language component that our profession also works with. So, um, so yeah, it's just basically, um, the same thing, but just different terminology has changed over time so yeah so when when Lionel's talking to him about his family you know he said he started they use the word stammer he started Mm -hmm. stammering at the age at age five um and Lionel wants to talk about his family almost like a therapist uh right and when he says I don't want to do therapy I just want you to fix my my speech it's a motor thing he's like okay well I'll fix your I'll we'll do motor exercises or whatever but it's not going to fix it so is there is there a psychological component to where you need to be sort of a you can also be a therapist uh 
almost like a psychologist or is it is it a mix is it always sort of a motor thing and you just want to get rid of the anxiety about the motor issue uh i would say um that thinking has changed over the course of time um as well as far as um his bent that it was like a trauma that happened to mm-hmm. him or the parenting or you know, something along those lines. Um, I do think back in the thirties, forties, fifties, maybe even as late as the sixties, um, there was definitely a school of thought that purported that fluency was probably because of some kind of trauma or stress. Um, and now, uh, like I was saying, I think we have a much better handle on the fact that, you know, this is not something that parents do to kids. This is not. Um, right. And so um, the only kind of quote unquote therapy type aspect that would come into it is just the whole counseling part as far as helping um, patients and their parents if their children to understand um you know, this isn't, you know, some kind of like, quote unquote, mental thing. This is not a a defect. It's not um, anything that a parent did to a child. Um, It's not not like a demon. So, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, so no. So, you know, my role is not therapeutic in the psychological sense as much as it is just counseling, um, you know, kind of realistic expectations, Mm -hmm. what this isn't, you know, what it potentially is, making sure that parents and children don't feel blame or anything like that. So, And patience, I feel like, is also key. I mean, watching the movie, of course, I was sympathetic to him and sympathetic to anyone who suffers this affliction. Uh, But there's this element of, like, you can all you can almost sympathize with the really ignorant dad because, you know, it's like what okay what are you trying to say you know what just but you have to you know wait for a little bit right I mean you you there you have to take away all elements of pressure. How hard is it though for for families to just be like I am so impatient when you know it takes two minutes to say a single sentence you know what I mean. Um, and that is, did you just say you just got to deal with that? Well, I mean, yes, you don't say it in that way, but you, you, it's about giving families strategies to make that part of the communication in the family. Mm. So yes, one of the things that we encourage parents to do is to obviously, you know, get down on your child's level, maintain eye contact, don't finish sentences for them. Don't guess what you think they're going to say. You know, again, like you said, patience is um, important because you want to be, them to be able to communicate what they need to communicate. And then in addition to learning how to listen, we also do a lot of teaching parents ways to model in their own speech, um, like slowing down, mm-hmm. using very fluid speech, um, just to kind of reassure the child indirectly that, you know, the speaking is okay. It's not, like you said, it's not a pressured type situation. It's a very um, non-pressure situation. So we do try to just counsel and give parents strategies so that they can, you know, help their child to feel comfortable, not feel pressured, you know, that kind of thing. So So what... Um, and I'm sure you get this question often, but what, uh, is the difference between a nervous stutter, you know, you hate public speaking or you you just have social anxiety or something like that. Um, and the clinical stuttering, or is it more of a spectrum? Is there, or is there a hard line difference? Uh, there are certain uh, speech behaviors that we look for to determine whether it is uh, more interrupted speech due to something like word finding or um, just trying to organize your thoughts versus what would can be considered clinical clinically disfluency um, and things that 
you know, kind of are the, um, I don't want to say red flags necessarily, but the patterns that distinguish quote unquote normal non-fluency, like just that people in their, in uh, their everyday speech might have Mm -hmm. are things like, um, blocks, which are where literally the sound stops either at the throat or the lips or the tongue. Um, um, prolongations, which are where a sound just keeps going. So like an S sound, instead of, you know, spot, you might say spot. That's what's considered a prolongation. Um, and then, um, the different types of, there are different, um, repetitions that are seen as more, um, disfluency versus just kind of you know, like I said, searching for words. Mm -hmm. So most people that are doing a speech, you know, they might say, uh, or they Mm -hmm. might, you know, kind of pause. They might repeat a word, but maybe like once, but generally you wouldn't hear like part word repetitions. Um, you know, like maybe the second half of the word, you wouldn't have, um, an, an interruption in the middle of a word, like a, a sound that didn't belong there in general. So those are, you know, kind of the biggest things that we look at with, what we would consider disfluency. So could you compare it to, they're not, they're not finding a word or they're not, when someone's trying to find a word uh, or a thought rather, they might hesitate or stutter, you know, say they're trying to say deconstruct or they're trying to remember, you know, what word to use in a specific context. You're like, it starts with the D, right? I, mean, I can't remember this word. So is it that feeling pretty much to, to a stutter? Or is it like, I know exactly what I want to say. It's just not coming out of my throat. Well, I am not a stutterer, so I can't say with 100% certainty. But no, it's not like a... I mean, of course, people that stutter would have the same quote unquote, normal non-fluencies that all the rest of us would have, because that's just part of, you know, like you said, organizing your thoughts, choosing words, things like that. I mean, none of us are a hundred percent fluent all the time. Well, so, (laughs) so, um, but no, in what we would consider disfluency or stuttering, it's specifically that there are physical mechanisms that are not allowing words to come out it's not searching for a word Mm -hmm. or anything like that this is interesting so it sign language can you stutter in sign language not that i am aware of okay it's more of a motor uh, reaction involving you say what your diaphragm your throat, tongue, and how that all connects to your brain besides how you're actually thinking. Like, you can still think linearly and, like, your thoughts aren't blocked at the word. It's just, it's the actual word that just does not come out of your mouth. Right, and it's usually not at the word level. It's at, like, the sound level. Oh, wow. It involves the what we call the articulators. So, like I said, the vocal cords, the tongue the lips. So it's the, the, where the physical action of the sound is taking place. Right. Okay. There, there are a couple of meaningful scenes, um, that I'm assuming, uh, are supposed to highlight some interesting things about stutters, uh, and not to generalize, but it does, is it true or is it just a bunch of Hollywood BS that, uh, stutterers can curse and like emote really easily like if there's just you know if you stub your toe you're not going to stutter over the word over the f word or is that not true because he he curses quite a bit in the in the movie and the guy's like see you didn't do it because you were just you were emotional Mm -hmm. i mean i i don't know if it's be it's like curse words specifically. I mean, like I said, there are definitely um, words because they probably um, start the way 
that this person has the most difficulty. So like I said, if it's an S or it's a F or mm-hmm. whatever, the S sound or the F sound, um, I mean, I would guess that it's not out of the realm of possibility that you would stutter on that as well if that was a sound that typically gave you trouble. So, sure. <laughs> Yeah. Um, not to... Not but to, I, not I to... mostly work with young children who do not curse. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, I I don't have the personal what experience doing today <laughs> with the YouTubes and all that stuff. They learn stuff early. They're like sponges. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into uh, what you have done throughout your career. You've worked you worked at Head Start, right? Correct. Okay, tell us a little bit about that experience. Um. Well, I. I'm not sure exactly what you want me to tell you, but um, I, because the things I do are pretty much the same no matter where I work. So, well, so, okay, so, head, but Head Start was, I, you could go, I'm, I'm thinking it could go two ways here. Like, Head Start is, is a government organization, right? Yes. Okay. Um, Whereas if you go to a private elocution teacher, um, you might be a little more, you know, high end, etc. cetera. Uh, obviously there's no difference in the teaching style or the clinical style, but do you find that there's a difference in the, uh, what you were talking about in counseling families, uh, et cetera, in differing socioeconomic communities that deal with stutters? Or other speech disorders? Um, I mean, it really is um, a case-by-case basis. I'd say, you know, I had very involved parents whose children went to Head Start, and I had very, um, quote-unquote, busy parents in other environments that I have no idea if they ever did any of the things I suggested at mm-hmm. home. So, yeah. And you had some tough experiences, right, at, at Head Start, um, emotionally taxing. Um, well, I mean, I think anytime you, um, you know, work with children, especially who, um, you know, may come from homes where, um, you know, they're in foster care or um, they just um, have very little um materially, um, which then affects, you know, the amount of food they have to eat and, um, the medical care they can receive and things like that. You know, it's just, um, I mean, it's definitely for me, it was a calling. I loved working there because I felt like a lot of the kids, um, you know, needed as much attention as possible and needed, just to be talked to and paid attention to. Um, because again, you know, I do understand that if you come from an environment where your mom has to work two jobs in order to take care of you, there might not be a lot of time for reading and there might not be, you know, you might see your kids a couple evenings a week because they might already be in bed by the time you get home. So, right. So moving on to, I want to move on to other, speech disorders what other i mean i I don't think i think a lot of people know about lisps but not you know totally the the mechanism behind it uh stuttering is probably the most famous uh speech uh you know pathology or pathogen right (laughs) do you call them pathogens (laughs) no we do not call them pathogens we call them um you know delays disorders depending on whether it's something that's um developing as it should but just more slowly than it should Mm -hmm. or if it's not developing as it should okay um so that so those two are pretty well known let's delve into just the lisp and i don't know another what's what's another well-known is it the the conflation between the r sound and the w sound like wedwabin no, like, yes, like um, not being able to produce the R sound correctly. Sure. Um, do you find similarities in the research 
uh, between speech disorders in general, or is it more of like this whole realm where, um, you know, where in medicine, a headache has to do with one system of your body and, uh, you know, a gut problem has to do with another system of your body, the digestive tract. Is it, is the speech similar to that where, you know, a stutter is just a fundamentally different thing than, uh, a, the W sound of the lisp thing, or do they all sort of branch off of a similar dysfunction in the brain? Uh, no, they are not, um, caused by what I would consider a dysfunction in the brain. Um, speech sounds in general, I mean, we don't know with 100% accuracy what causes them. Um, there are very, um, various opinions as to whether or not, um, not hearing the sounds correctly due to maybe a lot of ear infections when you were little, um, there are some people that think that, um, the articulators, so like the tongue and things like that can have strengths, like it could not be strong enough. Um, now in a person who doesn't have, um, some kind of physical, um, you know, neurological weakness causing that problem, then, you know, there's really no reason that your tongue should not be strong enough if you're normally developing in every other way. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different, um, quote unquote theories behind what might cause speech sound delays or disorders. Um, but generally, unless there is a neurological component, like with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, some other, um, thing that would physically weaken or, uh, discoordinate the articulators, if there's not a cause such as that, then it, we don't really dwell on what causes it. Mm. Um, unless again, like there's, we find a hearing impairment or something like that. It's more, what can we do to remediate it versus why is it happening? Right. So I, I did have sort of a, I asked you about the sign language, but, um, you know, we typically think about English sounds or whatever, when we think about center, I guess in the, in the United States or, or wherever English is spoken, but um, I presumably this is a dumb question and I'm assuming it's a softball question, but they exist in every language, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. And I'm interested in learning language. Some of the things that you have to do when you learn Spanish or something else is produce fundamentally different sounds or French, right? Where you have that really guttural sound. And that's just not something that exists in English or that you were accustomed to growing up if you if you didn't grow up bilingual. Um, is, is, is there a similar way to get someone who can't pronounce R's or S's correctly? Is it sort of the reverse process? For instance, Spanish uh, in Spain, you use a lisp or what we would think of as a lisp, uh, to make the S sound. And you have to learn that, to, to do that movement with, with your tongue and your, your palate, etc. So is it sort of a similar process uh, to where you get someone who can't pronounce their R's, or you get someone with a lisp to learn how to uh, manipulate their mouths and throats in certain ways to make a different sound? In, in other words, is it almost like learning how to speak another language in a sense? Well, like you, like the example you used, if there are languages with sounds that are not present in the person's main language mm-hmm. or first learned language, then it is probably pretty similar because what we do is we start with um, listening Um just teaching the person that the way they're making the sound is not the way that it it should be made. So, you know, they obviously need to say that they, they need to be able to discriminate between the way they're making it and the way that, you know, it's technically supposed to be made. And who was the author of 
the how you know this is how we all say it. Well, what if there were just what if uh, lispers became ascendant in in uh, society? Well, if if a person decided to not be bothered by that, then that's their thing. I mean, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to give you a hard time. So, uh, yeah. What- so yeah. So anyway, um, yes. You first, it's important that you be able to discriminate between what was considered a correct production and a not correct production. And then, you know, we also want to make sure that that is something that the person can imitate because if you can't even imitate it, then obviously it's going to be a long road to then try to make it by yourself. So, so that's really where we start with listening, discrimination, imitation, and then, you know, and, and really, I mean, 95% of the time, you can get someone to imitate a sound. Interesting. Um, again, unless there's some underlying physical reason that, you know, their tongue won't go where it needs to go or something along those lines. And even then, a lot of the times we can get a close approximation sure. of the way the sound is supposed to be made. So, so yeah, I mean, so when people learning French just can't say i cannot say rouge you know i cannot pronounce that r so i say rouge and it's just but you're saying 95 percent or so of people really can be accustomed to if you just hear it often enough or if you practice it often enough um you really can say it unless there's something wrong with your throat Generally, yes. I mean, there are, I think it's kind of a genetic thing, like whether you can like roll your tongue and stuff like that. Now I have nothing to, I know nothing about whether that has anything to do with like rolling R's and things like that. So that, you know, I guess that's a potential thing, but no, in general, you know, unless there's a physical cause, a person, a person should be able to produce the speech sounds that are present in you know, the languages that they, you know. <laughs> yeah, so all the people who say they can't speak another language uh, because they can't roll their R's or they can't <laughs> pronounce certain letters, Deborah Casey's on record saying, you can do it, you've got this, unless there's something morbidly wrong with you. <laughs> all right, um, to bring one salient example back from the King's speech, he puts on music uh, on, on, on King George, the, what is it, the sixth, I think? Yeah, I think it's the sixth. But he puts music on, headphones, blasting, so he can't hear his own voice, and then has him read the famous uh, uh, Hamilton, or I almost said Hamilton, <laughs> um, the famous Hamlet, Soliloquy. Uh, soliloquy. I was looking for the word. That's it. I was like, I was, I was like, oh, sy- symmetry. Solilo- okay, soliloquy. Yeah. So he brings in that to be or not to be kind of thing, and he reads it, right? And is that again? Is that a bunch of liberal Hollywood BS, or is that? Are you going to sit here and tell me that that actually can happen? No, that can actually happen. What? Because. Again, it's a, it's a feedback loop. So if you have the feedback interrupted, mm-hmm. whether it's through loud music, whether it's through something called delayed auditory feedback, where what that means is you hear yourself, like you can put on headphones, but with a device that slows down the, the rate at which the speech comes back to you, mm. that can also help to make people more fluent. So that is not BS. (laughs) Okay, good. But uh, so with people that stutter, the the main problem, it seems, or or one of the main problems is that they can hear themselves. I mean, that they can hear themselves stuttering. They're like, oh, no, okay. Let's say they could never hear themselves um, stuttering, just like, you know, if they had the music going on all the time, they would probably feel a lot more confident that they wouldn't stutter, right? 
Potentially. Okay. But in general, it's very difficult to communicate verbally without being able to hear yourself because you can't make corrections. You, you know, have, again, we rely on that feedback to continue our communication. Does, do you think the president has headphones in playing Mozart all the time? My guess is no. Okay. (laughs) There's some other reason he doesn't seem to be able to hear himself. Absolutely. Um, Okay. Uh, so what are the most uh, pressing issues in the field at the moment? I know you go to uh, ASHA conferences. What is, what is it? What is ASHA? ASHA is the American Speech and Hearing Association. Okay. And I'm assuming... Which is our licensing body. Okay. And so. those conferences are filled with booze and <laughs> liquor and you guys just get wild. Uh, but... In all honesty, what what do you do? Do you guys talk about current research coming out and different best practices, etc.? Are there debates over what you know how to cure lisps, etc.? Um, yes. To answer, not the debate part about how to cure lisps, but yes, we um, there is constantly research being done. Um, you know, one of the things about the field is that it is so broad. I mean, it, you know, I specialize in pediatrics, um, but other people specialize in stroke patients. Some people specialize in patients with Parkinson's. Um, you know, so yes, there's always ongoing research to pretty much any area of communication that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, it is incumbent upon speech pathologists to make sure that what they're doing is evidence-based practice. So, you know, you obviously want to be treating your patients in the most um, effective and ethical way possible. So you don't want to, you know, I don't think we're doing pretty much anything that maybe was done back in the fifties again, just because the knowledge was not there and now it is. So, um, but yeah, you know, there are definitely um, different philosophies about certain things. Um, the biggest one that I encounter, and again, working in pediatrics, is um, there's different opinions about whether or not non-speech, um, quote-unquote, exercises help with speech sound issues. So, you know, some people like have kids puff out their cheeks Mm. and, you know, five times or stick out their tongue and move it to the right and to the left. And, um, at this point, from my understanding, the research does not bear that out because there's a huge difference between the way the articulators are used for actual speaking than they are for other activities like eating or blowing bubbles or just sticking out your tongue. It's, it's a completely, separate, um, you know, neurological pathway and things like that. But some people believe in them and other people don't. So, you know, that's one of those things that, um, is kind of a, I don't want to say debate, but is, um, you know, definitely people tend to fall on one side of the fence or the other. Sure. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, some people think that it's literally like you can't do you might not be able to puff out your cheeks or move your tongue in certain directions because you have, and that's what's causing the stutter or Um, no, it wouldn't be involved in stuttering. It would be involved in speech sound errors. All right. Well, school me on what that is because well, like we've been talking about like lisps, like R's that are not, that are produced more like W's um, just a variety of, sounds that are made in a way that they're not supposed to be made okay okay i i believe this is true and well i believe it it could be a myth but supposedly that thing with the king of spain or with spain spanish is that a king of spain had a lisp and everyone who didn't speak like him i don't know would be sent to the gallows or whatever the the (laughs) spaniards did back then Mm -hmm. uh and so they started speaking, saying the S with a lisp. So everyone is now doing their own speech therapy. <laughs> reverse. Learn, right. right, in reverse. <laughs> uh, 
Um, Although I guess really, if they were trying to make it a standard part of their speech, I guess it wouldn't be considered then an error right. because it's it. They were trying to make it um, normative, right? Yeah, right. So that's fascinating. So <laughs> then, some so someone comes along and says, "Wait a second, these are s's. You should be pronounced like." S-. And they're like, "What? You need to speak. You need to see a speech language pathologist." So it's so your so that's interesting because your work, you you, even though sounds in the English from like archaic English, uh, you know, going all the way back to some Germanic languages, um, have changed, where we now pronounce word sounds like sh and and different, uh, I think they're called diphthongs. Um, it's based on whatever's, whatever's current and whatever is, makes you stick out. Like people want to go to therapy because their lisps are just not what normally, ex- you know, is It's exhibited. not considered standard. Sure. Yes. Sure. Um, do you think bullying at an early age can exacerbate this much later um in what way um so if i just remember from again from the king speech this is my only research preliminary (laughs) reason but um that you know when he was a kid he had some issues and and i remember the, the the scene where his brother sort of mocks his speech i'm imagining a poor kid with a stutter on a you know at recess or something and everyone's just making fun of him because he stutters um and i'm assuming that makes him more self-conscious that he stutters it would Uh, logically follow yes okay okay but you so you don't again you you don't try to go back to you know what is making this positive feedback loop uh, sort of what, what was the genesis of it you're saying let's just throw a wrench in it and just and stop it and and stop it is um, not a term we would use but to just give that person tips and strategies and exercises is not the right word but ways to make them more fluent mm. Uh, so can someone who uh, has a stutter and you give them coping strategies and mechanisms and whatever, and they fall off the wagon sort of with that, it can all come back, I would assume, right? Generally, if you get beyond a certain age, mm-hmm. probably six, eight, mm-hmm. and you have disfluencies that are again, what we talked about, not quote-unquote typical non-fluent speech that most people have at some point or another, I mean, the chances are that you are going to stutter or be disfluent. Sure. So, yes, if you learn um, certain strategies and then, you know, are either in a situation where you're just kind of stressed or not thinking about it or whatever, you know, I would venture to say that your speech would become less fluent. So, okay. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's a very fluid, um, kind of thing. There are going to be times where I'd say a person with a stutter would feel very confident about their ability to get through whatever they're getting through. And, you know, it would make, could potentially be hardly noticeable. And then there are other situations where, they just cannot organize their strategies within themselves sure. and they'll be less fluent. So so I talk out loud to myself quite often. I think I have a lot to say and I want to hear it. <laughs> but um, do people who talk, so they don't, they can think like in language as we sometimes do. Um, and But if they were to then, no one's home. There's no one to listen to you. Uh, and I, this might be a tree falls in the forest situation. I don't know, <laughs> but um, I try to avoid those. Uh, 
if no one's around uh, to hear you stutter, do you, in fact, stutter? And this is not a philosophical question. <laughs> um, you know, I have never asked a person that stutters that question, so I do not know the answer to it. How did you restrain yourself from asking <laughs> for this long? Never thought about it before. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to have to call in a specialist. Um, all right. So what what would you say is hands down the... We're going to do some parting questions here. The hands down coolest aspect of your job to you. In, me, in my mind, the coolest aspect of my job is just making such a difference in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, communication is kind of the foundation of humanity i mean you know being able to connect with other people and things like that definitely require a um, sophisticated means of communication Mm -hmm. and so making sure that the people i work with are able to establish and maintain that kind of you know interaction with others and things like that is really rewarding very cool and i i guess i asked you about debates but what debates or problems in your field are you most excited about or interested in? Um, I mean, I definitely um, go back to what we talked about earlier since that is uh, an area that I specialize in. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole um, children with articulation problems. Um, again, I have my opinion. Um, and so I look forward to the research continuing to bear out um, what I've come to um, do in my practice, which is that non-speech exercises are not um, helpful at all in working on speech sounds. Um, So I think that's um, something that is definitely, I don't know, how and when that debate will ever end, Mm -hmm. but, um, it'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out. Um, we, um, also one of the things that is very prevalent in our profession right now is figuring out with bilingual individuals, Mm -hmm. um, what are delays that are normal in learning two languages, Mm -hmm. um, versus what are delays because of some other cause. Sure. Um, you know, speech sounds also, like you were saying earlier, there are different sounds that are used in different languages. Mm. Um, so, um, generally it's one of those developing parts of the field to help clinicians figure out, you know, what are things that should be worked on versus what are, typical um, expectations for children learning two languages. Mm -hmm. So that's a very big area of the field right now too. And Mm -hmm. also autism treatments. And that's clearly a huge area. Because it's linked to communication. Well, most individuals with autism have some kind of communication delay or just, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So do you have any, any interesting stories, uh, that someone maybe only in your profession or, you know, might relate to, or that might get someone interested in, uh, in pursuing a career in speech language, speech language. I'm just this, you're setting me up for failure with your, uh, speech language pathology. Um, I mean, I feel like just in general, um, if a person is interested in, you know, having a quote unquote helping profession, Mm. um, but is really kind of unsure what that would entail for them. Um, I feel like speech language pathology, again, like I was saying is such a broad field that, you know, anybody can find their niche, you know, whether you like working with older people, with younger people, um, You know, I just have lots of stories where, you know, I had kids that had come to me and basically you couldn't understand pretty much anything they said just because their whole articulation system was just messed up for whatever reason. And, you know, I've seen them for a couple years and then they go off to kindergarten and they're 100 percent 
understandable. So, you know, you just feel like you've clearly, you know, obviously made a difference in that child's life and the whole family's life. I mean, you know, I just have a lot of parents that, you know, are just very appreciative and, um, you know, it just is a way to really make a difference on an individual kind of level. If that's, if that's kind of what you're interested in doing. Sure. Um, should more people be speech language pathologists? Is there a is there a shortage right now? There is a very high demand for speech language pathologists. Oh, okay, I hear um, money. <laughs> I am not exaggerating when I tell you I get emails and phone calls from recruiters on a weekly basis. Wow. Um, so yes, it's and if you will, if you look up, you know, in demand professions or fastest growing professions or some sort of terminology like that um speech language pathology is generally on um every list wow um and that's kind of a two-pronged thing um our population is living longer so we have a lot of older people that do have strokes or other diseases and need the profession um we're also much better at diagnosing kids than we ever have been before. Um, you know, we diagnose children with delays and disorders younger than we did. Um, we have better ways to diagnose disorders such as autism, which may not have been diagnosed, um, a long time ago. So that's one of the reasons why the profession is growing. And then also there just, um, sadly aren't enough graduate programs to meet the demand. Sure. Um, the entry level degree for a speech language pathologist is a master's degree. So, um, you cannot work as a speech language pathologist with a bachelor's degree wow. and there aren't enough graduate school spots for the number of professionals that are needed. So, yeah, well, it's kind of a cyclical. Kids. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you want to be a speech pathologist, not to frighten you, but yes, you must have excellent grades. <laughs> okay. Um, it's competitive. Yeah. But well, which is good because you obviously need people to be doing this work that right. are good at what they do. So right. even though some people have kids puffing out their cheeks <laughs> and moving their tongue around. Yes. Um, so how would so how would I guess you kind of answered the question how would someone begin to do what you do and how would they do it well um so yes yeah, so to begin to do what I do um I you do not have to have an undergraduate degree in like a communication science or a speech and hearing science it probably is preferred mm-hmm. but not required um but like I said um obviously good grades good GRE scores Um, and to be good at the profession, there are a couple things. I think number one, you have to have the kind of mindset or personality that understands and can combine an art and a science because Mm -hmm. there is a science obviously behind the field. And there are, like we were talking about earlier, evidence-based practices that we must Mm -hmm. be able to use and understand But then there's also an art to it because you'll have patients that on paper might look a certain way, um, but then they don't make the progression that technically on paper they should be. And so you really have to be a person that thinks on your feet or a person that's a problem solver and says, okay, this is not working. What else can I pull out of my bag of tricks sure. to see? Because again, we're working with individuals, you know, on paper. Yes, it should probably go like X, Y, Z, but it doesn't always. And you have to be able to draw on past experiences, draw on, you know, articles that you've read or conferences that you've attended and say, okay, let me do it this way yeah. and see what happens. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very exciting field to get into, not just because have a higher salary or even um, the, the work affecting individuals in a positive way, but because it is this kind of crossroads between an art and science. It's not a strict science quite yet. I mean, we, you know, we, we go off uh, evidence and there are theories built, but it sounds like, you know, a lot of the things, the jury is still out. So I, the, those, those points where you get, you can be on the vanguard of, uh, a 
you know, definitive science that seems really interesting. Um, so if, if you could go back and tell a young you one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, hmm. Just about life, your career, um, having kids. <laughs> um, do you regret having kids? I absolutely do not regret having kids, okay. no. <laughs> that's my primary calling in life okay. is being a mom. So, well, um, <laughs> so do you say, um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, because I feel like, you know, now looking back on my early career, I think, Oh, did I do that? Right. Did I do that? Right. But again, I think the reason that now I would do it differently is because I've been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. So, <laughs> It really would not be normal of me to expect to know how to do something, you know, back then that it's taken me 25 years of experience to feel a lot more confident in doing and knowing. So, so even like in work, but even in life, you, you have that, you have that philosophy that, you know, you should go through, I wouldn't go back and tell myself because though that, you know, uh, the, the stuff I had to go through uh, that I now know would be easier if I went a different way made me sort of who I am. Mm -hmm. would, you know, would you say that there, is there any piece of advice that you would give to young people uh, or people in between careers mm -hmm. um, that might be interested in this, that you just wish you knew going in or, or no, or would you say just dive in? Mm. I, you know, no, I don't think I, I, I don't think there's anything that I, wish I had known and it would have changed either the career I chose or the population I chose to work with. Um, you know, like you said, I feel like those choices all have resulted in the profession that I've had and the career that I've had. And like I said, I feel 25 years later, like obviously I know a lot more, but I think that should be everybody's goal. You sure. know, I'd hope that, yeah. you know, after you've done something for 25 years, you'd be a lot more competent and a lot more knowledgeable and a lot more, um, sure of yourself than when you first start out. So definitely. All right. Well, two more, and this is, I'm going to call this, uh, maybe this slow pitch curveball round. Okay. Um, so I'm going to give you a slow pitch here. Okay. I'm ready. Um, what's I used to be a softball player, you know. That's very yeah, that's interesting. And uh yeah, you were called stuttering, stammering Debbie. And she this was, was before a, I had anything to do with speech pathology. Um, so what's your favorite book, slash TV show, slash movie, and why? What's the most what do you think is the most important? Uh I know you're you're a voracious reader. So what what's your favorite book? What do you think most people should read and why? Oh my goodness. I, like you said, am a very big reader. A couple years ago, I made the goal to read 50 books a year. Did um, you I have done it. Yes. Very cool. Um, and so there is no way I could pick just one favorite book. Um, one of my favorites is I know why, why the caged bird sings mm. by Maya Angelou. Um, and why, just because I feel like it just demonstrates such a life different from my own, mm. uh, but a life that probably a lot of people have experienced. And I just think it's always one of the greatest things about reading is that you do get to experience through the words, sure. things that other people have gone through and how they did it and how they turned out afterwards. Yeah. And, um, so I love that book. I love A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm. Um, Fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, just like I said, tons and tons of books that I can't okay. even narrow down what my absolute favorite would be. I'll definitely link to those. A Prayer for Owen Meany is, is very good. Um, uh, and here's the curveball. What do you think is the meaning of life? <laughs> if I can just drop that lightly. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a curveball. I think the meaning of life is um, loving other people, taking care of other people, um, helping other people. Well, that, that is just 
that is just incredibly sweet. Um, <laughs> brought one single tear to my eye. Uh, was that it, or were you? In, <laughs> are you going to say something that totally offsets all that, like stealing? <laughs> no, I will leave that to you. Great. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so, where can people find out more about your profession? What's the best? resource to go to um the best resource to go to or one of them is um the american speech and hearing association that does have a website i think it's asha.org a-s-h-a.org and they actually have a student a, a tab i think for students which you don't really have to be a student sure. of speech pathology necessarily but um and so i think there it gives you information um if you're a high schooler I would recommend that you find the speech pathologist that works in your school or your district because every school system has them. Um, so seek them out and ask if you can sit down and talk to them about what they do. And yeah. sounds if it would be interesting to you, if you're a college student, again, if your college has a school of communication sciences and disorders, ask to meet with somebody, ask to sit in on a class, mm -hmm. um, and those would definitely be, um, you know, the starting points, I think. Great. Well, uh, we are officially landed at TF Green in my home state of Rhode Island. So uh, I'll have to say goodbye to Debbie Casey. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me.